In the following live session recording, Mike Griffin, public affairs representative for the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, talks about the Christian's response to the growing LGBT culture. This is a comprehensive study on how the church can reach out to the LGBT community without compromising the gospel and the integrity of church membership. It is important that churches respond lovingly, but firmly using biblical truth. Let's join Mike now. All right, it's uh, almost time, so let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we just thank you for this time to get together this afternoon. Thank you for the Go Georgia Conference and the opportunity, Lord, to just make a difference in the state of Georgia to increase the light by decreasing the darkness and by speaking the truth with love, impacting our state with the love of Jesus. And I pray, Father, you'll direct us today to help us to hear and understand what you want us to know and that, uh, Lord, we'd be effective in the time that you've called us to serve you. We love you and we thank you now. We commit this time to you, announcing the work of any spirit but your Holy Spirit over us. We commit this class time to you and this conference to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. I'm glad that you're in here with us. So we, like I said, we had a packed out. We've got a little bigger room this year, and I'm going to tell what it may be like tomorrow. But my name is Mike Griffin. I'm the Public Affairs Representative of the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. I'm your representative at the state capitol, representing social and moral issues that Georgia Baptists have spoken on through the years. I've been pastoring for 35 years in the state, born and raised down in South Georgia. I've worked at the capitol 12 years, Lord willing, this uh, January will be 13 years working at the capitol. Eight of those years with Georgia Baptist, uh, eight of those with Georgia Right to Life, Six with Georgia Baptist. Two of those years overlapped where I represent Georgia Baptist and Georgia Right to Life. I know people thinking, man, you're, that's, that's a lot. Well, I still pastor full-time. I'm still pastor at Liberty Baptist Church in Hartwell, Georgia. And in 2006, I ran for state representative. I know people think, well, what in the world is a Baptist preacher doing involved in politics? And I said, have you ever been involved in a Baptist church? <laughs> Do I need to say anything else? Apparently I've been there, done that, got a t-shirt from it. Uh, you know, having those monthly business meetings, voting on paper and plastic. I mean, you know, it can get exciting at times. I tell people, you know, uh, if it wasn't for people, this job would be easy. But if we're not for people, we wouldn't have this job. And Jesus came down the cross for people. And that's what we do. Well, when I ran in, in 06 and lost, that was when Sonny was up for re-election. I ran against the 14-year Democrat incumbent. I was uh, about 10 points out two weeks before the election. They said, well, you're going to win. I lost by 30 points. Yeah. One county out of three. Next year, uh, George Wright Life contacted me, started training me in 2008. I uh, started working at the Capitol. Uh, lobbying was there three months out of the year. And then uh, began to work as their field director up to nine to ten months a year. When Ray Newman, my good friend, passed away, Dr. White called me and said, hey, Georgia Right to Life will let you lobby for Georgia Baptist too. And I said, well, we'll see. And we did. And I liked to kill me. I mean, I was tough doing both organizations. And Georgia Right to Life had an assistant. I had an assistant uh, that helped uh, me uh, work in doing that. So I'm just saying, I, I'm just letting you know my background, uh, the richness of my own experience of just being a Baptist preacher. I uh, hope that doesn't disqualify me. Uh, and then working at the Capitol for 12 years, I run for political office, and um, 
I've got uh, four children, six grandchildren. I wish we'd had the grandbabies first. They're really great. Uh, you don't know how that is. And um, I, I'm a very privileged guy that I can look down the hallway and see all six of my grandyoungs running down to my office. I have a little candy thing. It's got a thing of dum-dums in it. You know, you're in there going there and come in there and get the candy out of the pastor's office. My daughters still use my bathroom in the pastor's office. You know, they're privileged. They don't go to it for everybody else. I know y'all want to know all that. TMI, TMI. Uh, <laughs> but that's just a little bit of my, my background in dealing with this. And uh, for that being said, let's look a little bit about our statement of what we're here for today. I don't have that in my notes, but I'm going to have to read it off the thing as well. And this, but teleprompter, not close enough to me, I guess you would call that if I was in politics. Uh, but this is a comprehensive study on how to deal with uh, how the church can reach out to the LGBT community through, um, uh, without compromising the gospel and the integrity of church membership. And I don't mind telling you, that's quite a feat. It's quite a feat. Uh, it's important that churches respond lovingly but firmly on biblical truth. I'm telling you, that can be difficult. You're, you're, you're looking to have to do both both at the same time. You know, kind of like Deion Sanders. You want to do offense, defense? He said both. Mm-hmm. Play football or baseball? Both. And see, we've we got to do both here. we got to stand firm. we got to love people yeah. all at the same time. And then this session will discuss how to deal uh, graciously, to graciously deal with the LGBT community and the policies needed to protect the church, church's religious Freedom, which I do another class uh, tonight. Uh, this evening I'll do one on religious liberty and its impact on missions and evangelism, how all these all go together. I want to look at these two passages of Scripture to start with, and and that, that's that's what you see over here on the sign <laughs> on the banner. Uh, the First Chronicles 12:32, and and the part I like about it is that, that the sons of Issachar they were men who understood the times and they knew what to do. Not mind telling you, it's hard for us to know both of those things. Most people don't understand really what's going on. I see a world that 98% of people don't ever see, and that's what happens in Atlanta at the Capitol. And I'm just telling you, it's really, it really should be worse in our state than it is. Uh, but do we really understand the time? There's so much. It's, where do you get your information from? And secondly, they, the sons of Issachar, and of course this was all the situation with King David, um, they understood the time, knew that he was God's man and what they were supposed to do you know, to get him to Jerusalem. But do we know what to do? Um, I spent some time with our governor this year, and he's just a very godly man, and, and his point, he made the same point, Mike, I know what's right. Pray for me that I'll know when and how to do it. And so we got to know, understand the time, then Lord, show us how do we respond. And then realize this, that Esther 4.14 says, For such a time as this have you been brought into the kingdom. And so I really believe that where we are, what's going on right now, man, I could just start crying. It's so bad. But it's so good. I mean, listen, there's never been a greater day to be a Christian. Man, the darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. It don't take a whole lot of light to make a difference when it gets real dark. Mm-hmm. So, man, you can just be a little old matchstick in a room that's dark, and you'll light up the place. And that's just really how bad it is out there today. I'm not telling you to try to be a nominal Christian. I'm just saying, man, it don't take as much as you think to make a difference. And last time I checked, Marilyn Monroe was just one person. Not Marilyn Monroe. 
<laughs> she was just one person too. Madeline Murray O'Hare was just one person yes. in the 60s. See what she did in the 60s, just one person. And she wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you got the Spirit of God inside of you. I mean, you got all the power in the world right there in Christ in you. So, I mean, there's no reason for us to run and hide and get out of the game and say, I'm going to sit on the sidelines. It's just too hairy. It is hairy. It's bad. But I just want you to see that as we start our time. To, uh, I want to tell you about a book I came uh, in contact with about five or six years ago. It's called, and, and a lot of what uh, my notes came from this book, and you can see it. it I, I beat it look like, like a cookbook, doesn't it? And so, I mean, it's called Loving My LGBT Neighbor by Glenn Stanton. Now, it's just like everything. I go back and read my sermons. I don't agree with them, all of them. How many preachers have got here? Really, some of y'all look like preachers. Anyway, but, uh, and so, you know, you go back and read your old sermon. You don't agree with all you've written and preached in the back. So I'm not going to say I agree with everything. I, I agree with most of everything in here, probably 90, 95%. A few things. I don't know about that. But, but really, it opened my eyes. It helped me to see some things. And my being at the Capitol uh, situation with one of my children, uh, man, it's really opened me up and helped me to see this thing in a broader uh, spectrum that I needed. Now, let's just start down here. I mean, we're going to get down here where the puppies can get it, okay? We're going to go ground level right there on the bottom shelf. And we, we typically hear the term LGBT. Of course, you may throw Q in there. Um, matter of fact, there's a, there's a complete whole alphabet just about. New York Times, I've got an article here. It came out June 2018. The ABCs of the LGBTQIA, and it goes on and on and on. The LGBT or Q pretty much sums up where we are today. And I'm not going to go into that, but there it is. Because, but I do want to talk about these. We talk about being a lesbian. Uh, it's women who are sexually attracted to other women. We use the term gay. It's men who are sexually attracted to other men. Also, it's a general term just for same-sex attraction. Then there's bisexual. Uh, that's one who is sexually attracted to and interested in both male and female. And then transgender, a person who was physically born male or female, but is either starting to transition to or currently lives according to the gender that they feel uh, really in, that, that's inside them. Now, I know you and I are probably not agreeing with this. I'm just telling you, that's, that's where we are. Um, and, and this term gender is a, is a recent phenomenon that has come about over the last probably 50 years. Uh, actually, the, the, the term that is accurate biblically is the term sex. And the term that describes the sex that's in the Bible is biological sex. So we're living in a day when fundamentalist, conservative Christians, Bible-believing Christians were considered non-biological. They didn't agree with science. It's amazing the other side has gone that way now. It's totally, totally ignored biology. I mean, um, so that, that's kind of where we are today in this situation. And then we've got the gender bread. There's also a unicorn. I saw that on Facebook yesterday uh, that they use. And th these, are, these are tools that are going to be used. This came out, I think, in 2012 from California. That doesn't really surprise me. I think it was introduced and showed at a... Uh, teacher uh, conference in Alabama a number of years ago as well. But you can put gingerbread in your iPhone. You can read all about it. 
there's updates in it. There's 2.0, 2.3s. I mean, you'll see. I just show this out here to let you understand that this is what's coming to your children. It's coming at the public schools. And what I do at the Capitol is very important, but I'm coming to understand if you don't get involved at your county commissioner, your council, your school board level is where a lot of this is going to be hitting now. Not just the top-down policies, but we're seeing it where you've got to get involved, your school superintendent, those people are very important. But what I want you to understand here is just, just looking at how, no, this is not the way I would do it, this is the way they're going to do it. Genderqueer, it goes on down intersex, bisexual, uh, identity something in your head, orientation something in your heart, sex is, oh you see where that is. So I mean, I'm just saying, there, there is, and then the outside, well that's how you want to express. So. I mean, right here looking at a time like I've even heard in Canada that there have been laws that ha hasn't happened. Introduced, say, maybe you don't even get your biological sex written on your birth certificate until you're, you know, uh, you get to the wait till you're 12 to determine what you are. You know, that's just where we are today. You, who in the world, homosexuality was not a very accepted thing. Uh, Same-sex marriage was certainly not accepted, but now we got people who, who biologically are one thing, and if you, you can have all the uh, physical changes and the medications and the surgeries uh, to say that you're something other than what you were born as, but if you die in 400 years, they dig you up and they test you your DNA, you're going to be a woman or a man. I'm just saying you're not going to be able to change that. Okay. I mean, it's not. And this was, I'm getting ahead of myself, but until our recent days, this was considered psychosis. This, is a, this was a psychological issue that, that people needed to be cared for from a mental health perspective. They need to be loving and ministering to them, not affirming that which will just further destroy them. So, and then if you, if, if you go ahead and add the, the cube, but you can also put the GD, which is, uh, and I know that may sound like a different term, but I'm just saying gender dysphoria is what that stands for. Uh, queer generally identifies uh, one of the, uh, one as challenging the moral value, the hierarchy of most sexual expressions, identities, depends on who you read, uh, how they're going to identify queer. Um, but I'm just going to LGBTQ, which pretty much kind of moves into as I see it, the gender dysphoria that's going on out there. And this is a, from a doctor's definition of it. Uh, it's a poorly defined syndrome compromising, comprising one or more mental health problems, commonly including anxiety or depression, among others. It includes a strong desire to be the opposite sex or to at least perform its stereotypes. So this is a real issue that um, we're, we're seeing now in the school systems. And I just uh, met with um, someone recently, I don't know if I've got that note, with, uh, with one of the organizations that deals with um, suicide prevention. There's a bill that's introduced last year that I'll be lobbying against as Georgia Baptist that is, that is to do away with conversion therapy. Meaning, if you're under 18, you cannot go to a licensed 
uh, counselor who has a therapy that has a goal to reverse you back to your original. Be against the law, you would lose your license, and it could eventually lose your license. The problem with that is that starts out there, and then it could move to other places. It comes into a First Amendment issue. It would allow the, the counselors still give their moral conviction, but they could not do anything. That, and they're concerned that it leads to a greater chance of suicide. Well, when you move into this area, your your risk just went up anyway. And uh, the people that need to be concerned and are increasing the risk are the people who are not persuading but coercing young people to go into that direction, who go through stages in their life, it could be a year or two, of some type of confusion about their identity. The problem is you make decisions between your birth and 18 that you'll have to live with the rest of your life and it's considered that a lot of young people now are really not coming to terms on really their morality and a lot of things until they're 24 to 26 because kids grow up younger than they were 100 years ago. If that makes it, how can you grow up be younger? Well, just it just seems like that a lot of young people are not coming to full understanding about some of the things in their life until they get a lot older. But, you know, I, I, I like to go back and read, you know, 100, 200 years ago, and you know, people were going through Harvard and all, you know, 14, 15, 16 years of age, you know, and I think part of it, this has nothing to do with the class, but I think people, they read a lot more, and, you know, it's just a different time, doesn't mean that you don't have people that are smart today, and kids that aren't very smart, I'm just saying it's a different society. Okay. Um, I, I, I throw on these in here. Don't let this scare you. Okay, I'm not trying to just wipe you out. But, I mean, here's where we are. Everything that you're seeing that has justified these other orientations is what's happening eventually in the other areas. So that pedophilia will, will eventually move from a disorder to an orientation. And from an, you go to an orientation to an identity, to an identity you go to a right. And, I, and I'm not, I, I don't want to be the kind of guy that gives a real, I've got antennas coming out of my head. I'm just telling you, if you've been alive for 50 years, you've seen this change yourself. And I'm right here. France passes laws saying children can consent to sex with adults. And it's August the 9th, 2018. Because I'm not, I'm not making this up. And this, this, was, this was in the New York Times 2014. And... Uh, so, just basically, let's don't make this a crime. This is a disorder. These are people who are born, they just like having sex with children. They're attracted to children. So, I'm just, I'm just saying, do you, do you understand that you begin to move that way? And I, I, know that I'm, I know I'm fixing to really scare you, but, I mean, you're already dealing with people like Peter Singer. Back 2009, 2007, is already saying he is amoral regarding standards. And, and listen, when you think about him, you, you immediately begin to think of things like the word pervert thing. But really, if you think about Peter Singer, he's been consistent. Because he says there is no such thing as right and wrong. Okay, when you, when you tear down the walls of what's right and wrong, then how can you say it's not right to be wrong anymore? I mean, it's like the Old Testament, you know, that which is good is evil, that which is evil is now good. He just simply saying that unless it 
it harms the animal or the ha animal is resisting, you shouldn't do it. He says, I'm not saying that you ought to do it either. He's saying, I just, I can find no, it is not intrinsically wrong for a human being to have sex with an animal, categorically. So, <laughs> that's just where, I mean, I'm just, this is, this is full bore where we're going now. So we're, and, and, I mean, if you're sitting in the room, we never thought we'd live in a day that homosexuality would become socially acceptable. There are ways, I don't mean this to be demeaning to homosexual, I'm just saying there are some ways we'd love to go back to that was only the problem we had. We're way past that. We're way past same-sex marriage. We're way, you know, mo moving into all this other stuff. So I'm thinking, man, you'd like to go back and think that that was all you were having to converse with. And now this is constantly moving all the way down to children, preschoolers, almost it seems. Uh, Jules Pfeiffer had this to say. He said, satire doesn't stand a chance against reality anymore. <laughs> I mean, how can you make up stuff? That's, how can you make up things? When, you don't have to make up things. It's just tell what's going on. The truth is more bizarre. And again, this is a recent thing that came out, and I have it, I have it right here. It's a Gallup poll survey uh, information. It came out June the 27th, 2019. Uh, there you've got the information um, entitled Americans Still Greatly Overestimate U.S. Gay Population. If you do surveys and ask people how many they think uh, percentage-wise are gay, LGBT, it's going to be you know, in, the, in the 20s, 20 to 30% range. But the hardcore real stats are that it's only about 4.5. But you would think the half the population was, the way it gets all the attention. It's just, it's just it's unreal how that happens. Uh, so I just want to throw that hard fact out there. The evolution of, of homosexuality. Let's talk a little bit about that. Hey, y'all come on in. And uh, let's talk a little bit about that. And we see homosexuality it is the sexual attraction of someone to someone of the same sex. Now, homosexuality was not originally known as an identity, but homosexuality, almost of all of human history, was known as an action. Okay? The term homosexuality as a category is only about 100 years old. That's where you don't really even see any Bible translations that have homosexual unless it's a contemporary translation. It will find being affectionate or effeminate, or that type of thing you will find in there. You're not going to see that, but that would be what it would be described. I'm saying that the term itself is only about 100 years old. It went from an act to a mental condition to a psychological disorder, mental, mental condition slash psychological disorder to now an orientation. The same thing, again, as I just mentioned to you earlier, can, is going to eventually be said about pedophilia. I mean, it just, it's going to start out that way, and then it's going to just move to actually just, just an orientation. And they'll just, that's just the way I was born. I meant to be this way. And so since the mid-80s, it has become an identifying characteristic or an identity. Therefore, when you, when you come to an identity, you're moving on the level of what is a, will eventually seek to become a civil right. And so notice the evolution of homosexuality. It started out as an act. It went to a thing itself that was classified as a disorder to be healed of. Good background music. Mm -hmm. uh, 
it then went to an orientation as thus a political movement, as you can see, and then to an identity thus as a right. So look at the progression that has happened over the years. Most of us probably grew up or before that you were seeing it in this area and then it transitioned into this. Let's talk a little bit about the nature of homosexuality. There are three distinctions, and again, it depends on who, where you're reading. I'm trying to give you what I'm calling a basic understanding. Um, three distinctions that are usually or once were viewed as one. So first of all, we will talk about same-sex attraction. These are people who consider themselves to have some attraction up to always being attracted to the same sex. So, um, if you're a heterosexual, then you're attracted to the opposite sex. So, that in and of itself, I mean, the fact that you have an attraction for the opposite sex is, uh, again, that's biblical. But you and I understand that's to be kept in check because then it moves to lust. We're not supposed to lust. They're definitely being tempted. There's temptation. You can't stop a bird from flying over your head. But when one lights, you lap him off, right? So you're living in a world there's going to be temptation thrown at Jesus was tempted. He didn't sin. Never sin. So temptation coming at us. Lust is when it comes in. Then you hold it into your mind and you think on it. And then you act on it. That's activity. So these are folks that say, this is just where my attraction is. Then you've got those that say same-sex orientation. There are people who always experience same-sex attraction. They consider it to be their constant or strongly dominant sexual desire or preference. Uh, again, all of these look somewhere in the 4 to 6% range. And then um, there what you call sexual, same-sex identity. It's understood that those who consider their orientation as same-sex attracted, that is gay or lesbian, will go to identify themselves with a social, uh, sociocultural identity as gay. So when it comes to responding to the gay agenda in our country, I think we have to approach it from a couple of areas. We're going to talk about the agenda, and then we're going to talk about the homosexual, the LGBT. And then we're going to, let's, first of all, with respect to the agenda, definitely we've got to reject it. Then number two, with respect to the homosexual, we have to love them. Doesn't mean we love the homosexuality, but we have to love the homosexual is what I mean by that. Now let's talk a little bit about rejecting the agenda. And of course the agenda uh, is connected to the moral sexual revolution that we're experiencing here in our country. We're living in the midst of a sexual revolution like the world probably has never known. Although we know times in the Bible, you know, we've talked about bestiality here today, pedophilia, homosexuality, all those things. That's not new. You go through all of the Old Testament, you will even see this. The scale that we see this on is different. Uh, the sin, there are, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon would say. It's the manifestation, the access to it and the temptation from it is greater because of the access of, of the media and all the things that are going on today. It's just not the same from that standpoint. Now I want you to know that British theologian Theo Hobson had this to say. Um, 
And he says there are at least three characteristics of a moral revolution. I think we're in it. In other words, what is it that has to happen if a moral revolution is to actually take place? Well, number one, first of all, something that was nearly universally condemned, i.e. homosexuality, must now become nearly universally accepted. Secondly, that which was once celebrated, such as biblical morality, must now be condemned. And then, those Christians who refuse to celebrate that which was once condemned, homosexuality, I'm adding the brackets in there to show you how that would apply to where we are today. Those Christians who refuse to celebrate that which was once condemned, homosexuality, must now be condemned themselves. And that's, that's, the, that's the realm that we're in. So, for example, you go back in 2017, uh, you have Tim Gill. And Tim Gill's been out and about for a number of years now as a uh, millionaire uh, gay activist. He took credit uh, for stopping the religious liberty bill that Governor Deal um, vetoed because he said there were seven states that they had identified to stop all religious liberty legislation and Georgia was one of those seven. So he took credit in helping stop it through the corporate world. And then 2017, in the Rolling Stones magazine, he made this statement that it was time now to punish the wicked. Now, you think this was a fundamentalist redneck preacher somewhere on sawdust trail telling me to get rid of these wicked people. This is an LGBT activist saying that you are the wicked. Yes. We've got to do something about these wicked people. And that's just how this thing is turned, where you have people actually physically abusing people and say, I had to hit you because of what you believe. If you didn't believe it, I wouldn't have hit you, so it's your fault. That's where we are. Um, and that's what he's saying there. So I'm just saying, that just shows you that Theo Hobson knows what he's talking about. And then we've got Dr. Moeller, he had this to say. He says, we're accustomed to ministry from the top side in the culture, not from the underside. He said, we are accustomed to speaking from a positive strength of respect and credibility. And now we're going to be facing the reality that we, all, that we are already in much of America speaking from a position of a loss of credibility. It, it, the, the tables have turned. And there was 7,500 years ago what the pastor thought had a lot of big influence in the community. What the church was doing dictated the schedule of the social events in the community. It's the other way around now. Church has got to wait and find out what the community is doing and we'll schedule it. I'm not, I'm not trying to get redneck about that. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that's just the way it is. We'll work in it. We'll find a way. But that's just not what it used to be. And you take people like uh, Chai, uh, Chai uh, I if I can pronounce her name, Phil, Phil Bloom. Chai Philbloom had this to say, gay activist and Georgetown law professor turned Obama administration EEOC official. She had to say this in responding to the clash of religious freedom rights with LGBT rights and how she believed religious freedom should lose. And she goes on and said, let me be very clear. In most all situations, not perhaps in everyone, but in almost everyone, I believe the burden of religious people 
I believe the burden on religious people that will be caused by granting gay people full equality will be justified. That is because I believe granting liberty to gay people advances a compelling governmental interest that such an interest cannot be adequately advanced if pockets of resistance, you know who they are? to the societal statement of equality are permitted to flourish and hence that a law that permits no individual exceptions based on religious beliefs will be the least restrictive means of advancing the goal of liberty for gay people. She's using those terms out of court cases regarding uh, First Amendment rights. That's what a RIFRA does. It, it says that the, that the government only has the right to limit your freedom uh, it, it has to do it in such a way that is in the least restrictive means possible. And it has to have a compelling interest to be able to do it. But there, she say this raises to that compelling interest that trumps your right in the First Amendment. The Restoration Act comes in there and says no, it has to be strict scrutiny, not intermediate scrutiny in court cases, meaning it has to have a very, very strong it cannot be modern, modern uh, uh, in, in between. In other words, just, it's just something we think you ought not do. No, it's got to be really something that really bears. Like in our state constitution, the state, you can't do anything that, uh, you know, from a health standpoint, you know, public safety standpoint, you can't do child sacrifice in the state, for example. You know, there, there are, you know, there's a safety issue there that will, you, that will even trump, you know, even in speech rights, you can't stand up and holler, there's a fire in the theater. You understand what I'm saying? So I'm saying hey, that, there's that compelling interest. We need to deny that right because you can't do that. She say this pushes it on up there to it. What she's trying to say. And then she goes on to say, and yet when and yet when push comes to shove, when religious liberty and sexual liberty conflict, she admits, I'm having a hard time coming up with any case in which religious liberty should win. That's where we are. Now, she's no longer there. But um, she, she helps uh, put the words to what is actually going on out there. This is a good friend of mine, Travis uh, Barham. Um, the quote did not specifically outline a government plan to go after churches regarding homosexuality. What it referred, what, it, what, it, what he referenced instead was what happens when the demands of the homosexual movement and religious freedom collide. Listen to what he says. He says the homosexual left will probably not go after churches until much later. Although I want you to know that it's already coming. Because in Iowa and in Massachusetts, the public accommodation laws that were passed did not have an opt-out for 501c3 religious organizations in those local areas. And um, I want to say that, I can't remember if this was city or state, but in both of those cases, it had to do, for example, like a bathroom in a city ordinance where you would have uh, public accommodation laws that required you to have a restroom facilities so that the same person, the same sex could, you know, or the transgendered individuals could go into these restrooms that they don't biologically match with. Typically, churches are not put into that, but they included it. ADF went in there, Alliance Defending Freedom, 
and threatened to sue in some of those cases. But nevertheless, they, they stopped it. It was reversed. It showed us where they're going to say that a church is a public accommodation. And, for example, one of the ways that, that we're being told it will come is if you put a sign out front that says, Spaghetti Supper, Public Invited, whatever, the, whatever your rules are in your community regarding those laws, it has to cover because you just put a sign out inviting everybody in there. Revival, public invited. You've made it a public accommodation. What are the laws that say you have to accommodate in order to have public come? The only way you can get around that is you'd have to say you're oh, it's for members only or you got a specific invitation personally to come. Now, we're all sitting there like I thought, well, this will never happen. It already happened in Iowa. It's already happened in Massachusetts. Now, it was stopped. But if you think that that kept them from ever trying again, I'm just saying that's where it's coming. You just got to keep wearing down. That's the, that's the whole reason we have to stand is because we're, wearing, we're, we're being wore down and many times people in the Christian community don't want to do anything in the secular community to defend their rights on these issues because... They don't think it really matters because only, only when it comes into church. But the problem is you have a Martin Niemöller moment who was a pastor in Germany who waited too late. And see, what happened was no one left. He said, by that time no one was left to stand for me because they didn't get out and defend everybody else. And so we, what happens is the church just pulls back inside of its walls. And then by the time the government comes with the church, everybody else has already already under it. There's nobody left to protect you. And, and immediately I've had pastors say to me, well I'm not worried about that. I'm ready to go to jail. Well the problem with all that is, and I'll talk about this in my next class, is that in this country you are the governor. What's the first three words of the Constitution? Where well, you're in. So you're just not Jesus there being persecuted by Pilate. In this country you're Pilate. This government gets its consent from the governor. So your involvement or lack of it in our government is helping produce the problems we've got. I'm saying, while we confess the sin, don't forget about that one. You 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 back out of what God what God's given you responsibility here. And this this is not Rome. This is not Asia Minor. This is not First Peter, Book of Romans. This this is America. You are to be the government to get a consent from the government. If you back out of it. When the righteous are in charge, the people do what? Rejoice. When the wicked beareth the rule, they do what? They mourn. But a lot of mourning is on the way because if God's people just keep backing out and say, we're too spiritual to get involved in all this stuff, then it will eventually come right to your doorstep one day. It's not going to stop at the doorstep. Now, I want, I want to show you this video <coughs> of ADF that kind of summarizes what I've been talking about with the environment that we're in right here. I got four videos to show you. Isn't that good? And it's supposed to be here. I'm a high-tech redneck. So here we go. Hope that don't blow y'all away. So a friend and I uh-oh, what did I do? I were walking around downtown Phoenix looking at Christmas lights this past holiday season, and we walked into a public women's restroom. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw something that caused me to do a double take. 
there was a guy in the women's restroom. Immediately, all of these confused thoughts started running through my head. Did I, did I walk into the wrong bathroom? Am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? Is it, is it safe for me to stay? Should I leave and call for help? And then it hit me. Under Phoenix law, that guy has the legal right to be here. You see, Phoenix passed a sexual orientation gender identity law, which makes it illegal for businesses or public places to make any distinction among people based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. So how in the world did we reach a place in our society where we're passing laws that allow men in the women's restrooms? Well, much of this can be traced back to political activists and lobbyists who are spending millions of dollars to pass SOGIs at all three levels of our government, federal, state, and the local or city level. Now, they've repeatedly failed to convince Congress to pass a SOGI at the federal level, and less than half of states have passed a SOGI at the statewide level. So the primary push right now is really to pass these laws at the local or city level. So here's how it generally works. An activist will approach a sympathetic city council member who then proposes the bill to his colleagues as a fix to a problem that, well, no one actually knew existed. But because the bill is clouded with words like discrimination, intolerance, and, well, the city council members, of course, don't want to appear uncaring, they oftentimes will quickly pass the bill into law without fully knowing its ramifications. So consequently, the community may not even be aware that a SOGI is being considered until it's already passed and on the books. Well, when SOGIs are passed into law, we insert them into what we call non-discrimination laws. And that sounds like a, a good and reasonable thing, right? But in actual practice, SOGIs are very problematic. For example, one challenge right off the bat is that even though we think we know what we're talking about when we use terms like sexual orientation and gender identity, these terms are actually pretty vague. They're not very well defined. I logged onto Facebook the other day and realized that Facebook now offers over 60 different gender options. No longer do you just select male or female, but you can choose from a wide variety of custom genders as well. Gender fluid, gender non-conforming, gender questioning, gender variant, gender queer, bi-gender, cisgender. And with regard to sexual orientation, even the experts disagree about what exactly it is. Some experts say sexual orientation is sexual attraction to men, women, both sexes, or neither sex. Other experts disagree and say, well, no, 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 it's actually personal identity based on your sexual attractions. Still other experts say, well, it's, it's really more behavioral in nature, based on your mannerisms or based on your sexual conduct. And then other experts say, look guys, it's really all of the above. But the bottom line is that sexual orientation just isn't an obvious or easily identifiable category like race. So ironically, we're actually forced to resort to stereotyping people 
Not only does Soji's deal with vague and amorphous and difficult to define categories, but they also have very far-reaching effects. And, if I may say so, they oftentimes will even reach absurd practical results. So consider these questions. Can a public school tell a teenage boy who psychologically identifies as a girl and dresses like a girl that he can't play on the girls' softball team? Or can a gay bar owner prefer to hire gay bartenders so that he can attract the type of clientele he's seeking? Or what about the corporate business office? Is it allowed to maintain a reasonable dress code and say, men, pantsuits only, while allowing women to wear those skirt suit combinations? Under a soji, the answer to all of these questions is no. Sojis have inserted into the law more confusion than clarity. But let's dig out of the weeds for just a minute. Have we actually even demonstrated that there's a need for sojis? My home city of Phoenix passed a soji just a couple years ago. And in the two years that this law has been on the books, only four complaints, four allegations of discrimination have been filed. All of which, by the way, were dismissed as baseless. If sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination were truly a widespread and pervasive issue, and people were being fired from their jobs or denied access to public services based on these categories, I would expect to see hundreds of complaints filed in a city the size of Phoenix. And you know, I think that's one thing that made me so upset about finding that guy in the women's restroom. We have no actual evidence that sojis are even needed. But we do have actual evidence that they open the door to all sorts of harm. Sojis make it far too easy for men with evil intentions to exploit these laws. I have no idea whether the guy walking into the women's facility genuinely and sincerely identifies as the opposite sex or whether he's there to harm me. A man in Washington state used a soji to gain access to the women's swimming pool locker room where he then repeatedly exposed himself to girls as young as six years old. And local officials said, Nothing we can do about it, guys. He's got the legal right to be there. Girls, if you're uncomfortable, find a different locker room. And in Toronto, a dangerous sexual predator used a soji to gain access to women's shelters, where he then raped two different women. As a woman, I feel vulnerable and unsafe, knowing that my government places so little value on my personal privacy and safety. Sojis confuse, they don't clarify. Sojis create problems, they don't solve them. And as a society, we can still show concern for an individual who's struggling with feeling accepted or, or wrestling with an internal conflict over their gender without passing bad laws. Sojis are distorting, they're unhelpful, and they're outright dangerous. Sojis are bad for our communities, 
and there are much better ways to promote human flourishing and to protect the freedoms of every member of our society. Thank you. Now, what I want to show you is that um, everything that she is concerned about, and it, I'm sure you are too, that is trying to be passed on a local level has and is now being attempted on a federal level. It's called the Equality Act. And if you they don't want to have to go individually, you're going to have this broad brushing legislation that was not passed, but it appears to be coming up again depending on who's in charge who's in charge of Congress and President. Uh, let's see. Freedoms of every citizen. Unfortunately, the so-called Equality Act, which Nancy Pelosi recently introduced, fails to meet this basic standard. The Equality Act adds sexual orientation and gender identity as new classifications to federal non-discrimination provisions. You may be wondering what this law's impact would be if enacted. As we've seen, similar laws and policies adopted at the state and local level have undermined human flourishing. There are five things you need to know about bills like the so-called Equality Act. Number one, it would create unequal playing fields for women and girls in athletics, education, and business, and would force them to share private spaces with men, including locker rooms, shower areas, and women's homeless shelters. Number two, it would harm birth moms, children, and their families by preventing certain child welfare providers from serving and finding loving homes for kids in our nation's overloaded foster care and adoption systems. Number three, it threatens parental rights which are pre-political and guaranteed in the Bill of Rights. Destructive gender ideology, which is enshrined in the Equality Act, threatens the fundamental right of parents to raise their children consistent with their beliefs. It could even allow children to be taken away from parents who refuse to endorse a gender ideology regime. Number four. It would threaten the medical community's ability to serve patients well and provide medical care consistent with the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. Number five, it would stifle economic liberty and force people like masterpiece cake artist Jack Phillips and Arlene's flowers florist Baronel Stutzman, who serve everyone, to promote messages and celebrate events that conflict with their beliefs. But disagreement on important matters such as marriage or sexuality is not discrimination. Laws like this threaten the constitutionally guaranteed freedom of every American to peacefully live and work consistent with their convictions without fear of government punishment. Americans deserve better than the profound inequality proposed by this intolerant, deceptively titled legislation. Our lawmakers should only enact legislation that promotes the common good and a flourishing, diverse, and pluralistic society. For more information on the Equality Act, go to www.allforfreedom.com. Every person should be treated with dignity and respect. All right, I just wanted you to see that. Um so that you can see the ramifications of where we are in our nation and to understand that we're we're on the brink of a tsunami at any moment here um, I know that the birds are tweeting and it seems pretty peaceful but um, 
there are a lot of things that are sitting in place right now that if they're acted upon could have a very broad sweeping impact. Now, with that being said, I want to move on because I'm about to get behind. I don't have time to show you that video. But this is a group, you can write this down, it's called churchclarity.org. This is where people come to your church or they visit your website. And they will go in and they will rank your church as to your being user friendly to the LGBT community. They will try to they will rank you to try to determine where you are as far as uh, is it is it clear where you are on the LGBT issue? Is it unclear? Is it clear that you are against it and you're not going to be saying things that are welcoming, or is it clear you're okay with it and you're going to be embracing of that lifestyle, or you'll be preaching against it? They're going to rank you, so they're going to go in so that they can figure out who the churches are. So people will know the ones that are standing on the biblical morals and the ones that aren't, so you can see there's a, it appears, a targeting coming up. Go check it out. I, I had to, I've got the video. I can show. I just don't have time. I'm going to spend all this on it because I want to go to the other side here in just a moment. But you have to reject the agenda. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord will lift up a standard against him. You know, the authority of the Word of God is where we have to, to go in that uh, particular area. And we look at that three most basic areas that God has given all of society. And that's, this is this is one on one stuff that most people don't know. And unfortunately, it's not being preached from our pulpits very much. And that is God has ordained three institutions to govern. The home, the church, and government. Romans 13 says that government, God's idea of government, He's the one that came up with it. And out of that's where we find schools and businesses are operating under those laws from them. But these are the three areas. Uh, now, there, what do we, how do we do, reject it through teaching? Um, and that is dealing with a biblical worldview and, and homosexuality. I want to show you this very quickly. This comes from GotAnswers.org. It's a very good website. I recommend it to my church. If you got got questions, uh, this has got got answers. There's a got questions is really good too. But I wanted to show you check that out. It's very good. But I want you to see this because I just want you to see this. And I've given you a message that I preached 12 years ago, some notes from that. Let me make sure I've got it all right here. Here we go. Hopefully it's not too loud. Grab your ears. You have ringing like mine. Question. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Is homosexuality a sin? Those questions will be answered in this video and be sure to watch until the end because it might surprise you. After that, I'll provide you some helpful information so you can dig a little bit deeper. So stick around for that. Yeah, I got the Bible it. consistently tells us that homosexual activity is a sin. Romans 1, 26 and 27 teaches specifically that homosexuality is a result of denying and disobeying God. When people continue in sin and unbelief, God gives them over to an even more wicked and depraved sin in order to show them the futility and hopelessness of life set apart from God. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 proclaims that homosexual offenders will not inherit the kingdom of God. God does not create a person with homosexual desires. The Bible tells us that people become homosexuals because of sin and ultimately because of their own choice. A person may be born with a greater susceptibility to homosexuality just as some people are born with a tendency to violence and other sins. That does not excuse the person's choosing to sin by giving in to sinful desires. If a person is born with a greater susceptibility to anger, rage, does that make it right for him to give in to those desires? Of course not. The same is true with homosexuality. However, the Bible does not describe homosexuality as a greater sin than any other. All sin is offensive to God. Homosexuality is just one of the many listed in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 that will keep a person from the kingdom of God. According to the Bible, God's forgiveness is just as available to a homosexual as it is to an adulterer, an idol worshiper, a murderer, a thief, etc. God also promises the strength for victory over sin, including homosexuality, to all those who will believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Alright, so I'm talking about what, what do we do in, in dealing with this. Teaching, biblical worldview, teaching on human sexuality, marriage and family, teaching and examples. Uh, this has been a big problem. Uh, when I taught uh, family series is in the churches I've been in, 35 years. Uh, I've only been in four churches, actually three, because the one I'm in we came out of, but we've been in a new church now 22 years. Uh, we not only lack the teaching on the family, understanding what marriage is, do we have examples though? So you need to see it. And kids that may come to church without their mom and dad need to come with a mom and dad so they can say, well, I, I, don't, I don't think I want to follow like my mom and dad live, but I can remember Brother Joe and, and, and Miss Sue. Uh, I want to be like them. When I, at least they would see another example. They'd have a choice to have. And then here's, a, here's what I want to talk about very quickly because I want to get to the other material. But there are a lot of things that heterosexuals have done that have done more to destroy the family way before homosexuality ever got to the level that it is. Now, I give you all this because I'm fixing to go in another direction here in a little bit. It's going to make you make me think. I don't want you to think that I am condoning homosexuality. But I'm here to tell you the destruction of the families of what's been going on over the last 50 years has been going on in a lot of ways through the heterosexual things. And the abortifacients and all those things that are being done, you know, with the whole emphasis now seeming to be more on sex than anything else. Now, God made sex as a part of marriage, believe me. But, you know, it's just... Um, now people want to have sex without babies, and now we want to have babies without sex. I mean, you've got all the things that are going on to create human life. It's just really weird what's happening. The legalization of abortion has been horrendous. I mean, 60 million, 1.3 million. One, uh, one dies every 23 seconds on average in the United States. 1.4 million a year. It's just horrendous. No-fault divorce. This marks 50 years of no-fault divorce. But the divorce rate has gone from 77% to 50%. Well, that's great. Let me tell you how you don't have divorce. You don't get married. You live together. And that's why you're finding, I hope that these young people are extremely celibate. 
But I'm, the, I'm having a hard time understanding that, that you're getting married that late in life, which I'm not saying that's wrong. But when I see how folks are dressing and how they're rubbing up on each other and carrying on in public, I always learn as a kid, if you act like that in public, Lord knows what you're doing in You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not even, if you're married, I'm not interested in you just hanging all over each other. But you know, it's personal preference. I'm just saying, uh, uh, I, I, I made this, I've said this for the year. I was a youth, I, was a youth I said, listen, if you, if you don't touch, if you're never alone, and keep your clothes on, you're going to be okay. <laughs> you go with those three, you're good to go. I mean, you'll be all right. You'll be able to say, I'm a virgin when I get married. Now, listen, uh, nobody's perfect, but I'm saying when you start out with a skewed model, it's going to lead more toward the imperfection. We've got to keep the, the standard up there, realize none of us are ever going to be perfect. But my goodness, if you drop that standard, folks are not going to shoot that high anymore. And so that's just where we are. No-fault divorce. So, it, again, I, I believe that before we had the no-fault divorce, we had zombie marriages. They, they were dead marriages. They were just together. They were still, the, the marriage was dead. You know, that didn't make it right necessarily to get a divorce. I'm just saying that don't think everybody was really super spiritual 50 years ago. There was some bad folk. They just needed to get married because it was, it was just taboo. Uh, they just had bad marriages and stayed together. Uh, I think you have good marriages in the state. I think that's what we need to be looking at. But I'm just saying no-fault divorce, except there's a living together before marriage. I mean, all these right here are, are destroying the home. Uh, denial of responsibility raising children like, like there used to be years ago. Greater responsibility on... I mean, in our, in, in our school system, we're trying to provide mentorship in only 40% of the children are in a home with their biological mother and father. It's in Hart County, in the country. South Hart. It's not the city. 40%. Only 40% got their mom and daddy still with them. Praise God for the grandmas and everybody's helping take care of these kids. But I'm just saying that, I mean, really, standing in the public policy, greatest danger we face beyond same-sex marriage, public accommodation law. We've already talked about all that. Um, I'm not going to show the other video. I'm running out of time. I've got this information for any pastors here. and You can go on the website and find this as well. Uh, ERLC has it. Georgia Baptist has it. The church protection plan, I have the material here with ADF. If you're a pastor, if your church is not on that, you need to get on it. Uh, it's a protection plan where you pay based on the size of your church. Um, you will have an attorney assigned to you that will go over your documents and be there in case you have any legal issues. The Georgia Baptist have like a 20% discount on that. But what are you doing in your church? Well, you need a good statement of faith, policy uses, marriage policy, membership policy, um, procedures regarding church discipline, religious criteria for employees, and statement of, of final authority and faith and conduct. So these are documents that you're going to need to have now more than ever before in your church. And I can point you in the right direction to get you with that. That's, I'm just sort of laying this out for you. you. have Paper anywhere? Right here. I have a book. Now, I want you to look at this, and I, I don't know if I need to look at my notes because I may just go off my notes and go go rogue here. Um, but as far as trying to keep up with where I'm at, um, we need to see the difference between activists and the community. Uh, and, and I see that. I'm, I'm at the Capitol. I'm, 
I know what an activist looks like. I see them. I know. Okay. But I just want you to know that not every homosexual is an activist. Okay, I'm not fixing to go to the left on y'all, but I'm just trying to bring you back. They're not. Seriously, some of the nicest people I've ever met, the meanest people I've ever met go to church. Seriously. I mean, I don't mean that to demean the church, but some of the meanest people I've ever met are church members. I'm a pastor of 35 years. I know I'm like the farmer's commercial, you know, the insurance. I know a thing of people, but I say nothing of people. So I'm just saying that, but, but the community is not necessarily that some, some don't even consider themselves gay because gay has a more political side. Uh, most, most just really want to live together and do what they want to do and not mess with anybody. I've actually talked to them and they've looked at me and they said, I would never make you bake me a cake. I would never make you do anything that you felt like in your heart was wrong. Now, I'm not condoning their lifestyle. I'm still wrong, y'all. I'm just saying, you do have to be careful. They broad brush us, them, everybody gets broad brush everything. That doesn't mean that, that that's the way it is. And, um, you know, I keep from mentally falling apart. Um, I was in a room. I've got to tell these two stories if I don't get nothing else done here. The first riffer was introduced. Five years ago. Actually, yeah. Yeah, it's been five years ago now. Be six next year. And there was me and Kay Godwin from South Georgia, Mike Stone's church, and the Archdiocese attorney, Frank Mulcahy. And we were in a room about twice this size, yeah, maybe, to have the first hearing that got moved because we couldn't have it in the other place. And the LGBT community had been coming for like three hours and we were able to finally get in there because they had been in there for two or three hours. Just, they were ready. And they shut the doors and brought security in and here we went. And then they went to testifying against the Riffra. And then I was in there with them. And y'all listen to me now. I'm not, I'm not for their lifestyle. But they were talking about the difficulties that they were going through and how they were being mistreated. Y'all, I'm not for anybody being mistreated. I don't care what you are or what you do. You, you just don't mistreat people because they're created in the image of God and you respect people, not because people necessarily deserve respect, but God deserves respect. And my heart broke. Now, I don't agree with them. But let me tell you what got me. Because my son had just walked away from the faith and said he wasn't a Christian. He withdrew from our church and was gone for three months. And he had just come back home about when I was going through this at the Capitol. And here's what I said. Now, Mike has come back to the Lord in the last few months. And over the last year and a half, he's stronger. He was the strongest Christian I've ever seen now. But he was wild as a goat for a while. And a pastor's son. And I looked in that room and I said, this whole room is full of men and women. That's somebody's daughter. Somebody's son. And God loves them. He sent His Son Jesus down on the cross for them. And I'll tell you what, that, that and another experience just flipped me. And then my conversations with some of them 
And when I would talk to activists and lobbyists that were of their persuasion, it blowed them away that I would even talk to them. And I have about seven on my prayer list that I'm praying for. Put my arm around one and got a picture with her. She's trying to be a man. And I, and I said, listen, God loves you just the way you are, but now listen, me and you both, He's not going to leave us the way any of us are. going to be more like Jesus. And I've shared with her my testimony card. and You know, uh, my, it, we, that's got to be torn down so that we can be able to talk and be able, and my prayer is, and I'm James Mayer and I said, so we, we want to work together. I want to be able to see some of these folks. I want to share the love of Jesus, see some folks come to Christ. Um, so the activism needs to be rejected because the Constitution, the Bible, there's our, our authority to do all that. But listen, love in this case involves grace and truth. The law came through Moses, but Jesus said grace and truth came from me. And what he meant by that is grace and truth involves a relationship. And, uh, you know, I like what Glenn Stanton said. He said, truth without grace is abusive, but grace without truth is mere sentimentalism. It takes both. In other words, truth says abortion is a sin, but grace says abortion can be forgiven. And my same son, before he walked away from the faith one night, was with me traveling for five years. I traveled the state. I've been everywhere. Churches, political meetings, pastor conferences, Rotary Club, Kiwanis Club, Goat Ropens, Chitlins, Struts. I went anywhere to speak on the pro-life issue. And I was driving away from one of those events, and my son was driving, he was driving me as we were leaving. And he said, Dad, you forgot one thing. Now, this is before we walked away. Now he's back. We talked about it the other day. I said, man, you... You had a strong faith that you didn't realize you had back then. He said, Dad, is one thing wrong about what happened tonight? I said, what? He says, one thing you forgot. I said, what was that? He said, you forgot to tell them that God can forgive women that's had an abortion. You talked about how bad it was and the sin of abortion, but you not one time said, you know, you can be forgiven. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm sitting in this room right here. There's not a person in this room, including this one right here, that has not had a family member that had an abortion. Our hearts have to be broke about this when we talk about these sins. I remember as a teen, I started preaching when I was 16. I remember the first time I preached on hell. A guy told me, said, if you're preaching on hell, you need to cry because I'm going to tell you, you can't say people are going to hell and act like you like it. And the first time I preached against hell, I wept. And I'm against homosexuality. I'm against abortion. But I tell you, it breaks my heart. It breaks God's heart. God loves these people, wants to be forgiven. They don't have to go this route. The devil has bought. Got them to buy a lie. And we got to show them grace and truth. We got to stand. I'm sorry. Can't, can't agree with you. But I love you. And it had nothing to do with whether or not I love you. And so it has to be that balance. So we need to understand that homosexuality is not the worst sin in the Bible. Original sin has, is, 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 is a great equalizer. And indwelling sin is the great humbler of all Christians. You know, we've been saved, but let me say something. We still got indwelling sin. And, I, and I, I've witnessed the homosexual. I, I, 
I've had this one, he called me back. I'm still praying for him. He's out in Colorado. And he, he said, Mike, I, I, I listened to what you said. And he said, um, and I've been talking to him. I said, you know, um, I can't say his name because this is being recorded. But I said, you know, I'm not telling you that if you come to know Jesus, you're going to have to get married. God, it may be God's will that you never get married. And I'm not telling you if you'll get saved that you'll never have that attraction anymore. But I'll tell you what, your identity will no longer be in your homosexuality. Your identity will be in Christ. And if you embrace the cross, Jesus will live through you. He will trump that desire that you've got. Just like I have to commit to Christ to keep from lusting at women. I haven't lost my desire for the opposite sex just because I got married. I have to die to self or I'm going to lust after women. You know, I'm, I'm just saying. And just because he gets saved as a homosexual doesn't mean that he's not going to ever have to have that deal with that temptation. But I can tell you this, he don't ever have to give into it again because Jesus is Lord of this life. But I said, God may work in such a way you may end up getting married. And, he, and one day we talked, he said, you know, I listened to you. He said, you know, I got to think another day, if you were wrong and you die, you just be dead. But he says, Mike, if you're right and I die, I'm going to hell. I said, no, I didn't say that to you. He said, no, I figured it out. I, 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 don't know what's, I don't know where he's at. I mean, I know where he's at. I hadn't called him last. I think that's his phone number. If all said real sin, that's his thumbprint on us in a number of ways. This is me debating live on Channel 11, Brian Long. And before I went in there, um, he'd been riding the truck around the Capitol saying, you know, had a crime scene tape on it saying, we passed the Legion of Bill, women and children are going to be abused. And um, so they asked to come in there and debate each other one night. And it put me in the room with him. We, you know, this was in the green room. I think it was actually green. You know, it's really weird. And it put me in the room it was about this big. And we're just chairs and tables, you know, and Coca-Colas and stuff. We're sitting there. We're just sitting there looking at each other. Hey, how you doing? I mean, it's like arch enemies. I mean, they're right there in the room together. And I said, Brian, I just want to tell you something. I love you. I don't hate you. I said, I've repented of my homophobia. I've repented of my derogatory remarks against the LGBT community. I'm not here to say or do anything against you tonight. That's not what it's all about. And he looked at me and he said, well, if that's true, he says, why do people like you always say that people like us are going to hell? I said, Brian, we're all going to hell. What? I said, yeah, we're all going to hell. That's what Jesus came and died on the cross because we're all going to hell. He's trying to keep us from going to hell. He came and died to forgive us of our sin. We're all sinners. And I said, Brian, your sin didn't even make God's top seven list. He said, what? I said, do you know what the number one sin is according to God? Listen to this. I'm not making this up. He said, I ought to know. I used to be a Southern Baptist. I said, there's six things that the Lord hates, you seven. And number one is a proud look. And the worst pride anybody has is to believe they're not a sinner and they don't need Jesus. That's the worst sin in the world. And then, you know, we just sit there and talk. 
For one out there, you can go, that, that video is on Public Affairs webpage at Georgia Baptist. You go through the Vimeo channel, work put, you'll have to find it. And you can see, we, we never we never went at each other, we went at the issue. We were defend, I was defending Kelvin Cochran and the Religious Liberty Bill and all that, and he was going on with me and, about what we were doing, but not at each other. Before I went in there, Twitter feed, was, they were wearing me out. I mean, they was they would tear me up on Twitter. Come out of there, I sat in my car, went through it, no more negative tweets. Hey, I'm not telling you, if you'll do this, you'll never have any problem, because listen, Jesus was Jesus, they put him on the cross. I mean, he never did anything wrong when they killed him. You know, he gave his life. But I mean, you know, I'm saying he died because he doing he was because he was Jesus. <laughs> he was treated bad because he was Jesus. So just thinking just because you're not I mean you're not gonna be mistreated. Well, let me go on through this. You look at all the stuff here. We talked about the different kinds of sins that are there, and you can see is there's more than just that one sin. Now, let me say this. I did tell him this, and here, here's where here's the passage I was talking about, the proud look. So now that does not mean that certain sins don't have a greater societal impact, don't have a greater, you know, all that. I'm just saying, but as far as God's concerned, it's, it's all level right there. You're just a sinner. <coughs> Jesus died for you. So Jesus gave the law to the proud, gave the grace to the humble. And so when you go over here to these passages, go to Matthew 11, and in this passage here, he said it'd be more tolerable for the folks from Sodom than it will be you guys. Because these were the religious leaders who were to up and up the Holy Joes, you know, acting like they didn't have no sin. And Jesus said, you, the homosexuals are going to fare better than you folks because of your rejection of the Son and, and, and your hypocrisy. And then you go down here, and, and, and when Ezekiel calls back to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he doesn't call attention to the homosexuality until talks about the other abominations. But he begins with arrogance, abundance, food, carelessness, and ease. He's basically talking about materialism, luxury. And, and, and the thing I'm trying to say that we didn't get to where we are with homosexuality, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, gender dysphoria, bestiality, pedophilia, that doesn't happen overnight. It's always happened everywhere, somewhere. But I'm just saying, the prevalence of it just didn't happen first. And then all this, let me tell you what, this stuff right here is what started, and it's now led to this. It may end up being actually more a symptom than what the actual problem is. The problem is turning their back on the Lord. And when that happens, then it just comes in like a flood. And then it manifests itself in greater proportion and greater as we go forward. Um, so we need to repent of our homophobia, bigotry, derogatory remarks against the LGBT community. I'm not telling you I'm for the lifestyle. I'm just saying that's not going to work. I mean, that, that, that won't work. Just scream and tell people they're going to go to hell, which is true. It's an actual true statement. And I got to say that to Brian, but I wouldn't saying it in a derogatory kind of way. You know, just like I was making fun about it. And, you know, I had preached in James, and I know this is about a rich guy coming into your church, but it's just about discrimination in general. And it says prejudice discrimination. He says, understand that Christ's kind of love is not expressed with favoritism. Understand that God's love is not demonstrated with worthy worldly standards. Understand that expressing love with prejudice and discrimination is a sin. 
and understand that real love is a reaction caused from an experience of God's love. The characteristic of God's church is to is to be is, is to be uh, kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. That's what it says in, in Ephesians four. That that's that's to characterize the church, and that's not just inside the four walls. That's the way we're to be out here, kind, tender-hearted. Our hearts to be broke and forgiving. Uh, that's that's what will draw people. We talk about the draw all the time. With that, that'll draw. And the love of Christ is what draws, I believe. Churches have to have new conviction uh, that the gospel can save anybody. <laughs> you can't be too big a sinner that the gospel can't conquer. Paul said, I'm the chief sinner of all. God got me. I mean, you know, you can do that. No, it's not. that's not a big deal for God. It's the big deal is with the person. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I, I want to I show that. I want to close it. Just a minute. I don't agree with everything that sometimes I hear from all the people that I hear from. I'm not gonna get into all that right now. I, I just like I, I just like this statement. I was there when she said this. I, I was at the conference this afternoon. But I, I just want you to I just want to get to this. If I could just if I wouldn't take so long on this other stuff. And I'm sorry for that. I'm just that's just the whole preacher in me. Let's see, here we go. Take that. I want you to see this. She's going to get right to what it's all about. When I started reading the Bible, I was reading it for a research project. You know, I was writing a book on the religious right from a lesbian feminist perspective. And, you know, my colleague was an anthropologist. He could go off to promise keepers, you know, if, meetings and interview people, but I'm an English professor by training. My job is to read this book that got all these people in trouble and figure out why. And um, no, I'm serious. You think I'm kidding. I'm cleaned up right now. <laughs> she was a lesbian. Um, all queer, but, you know, in all addition that, to that, I'm an English professor, professor by training. I'm a whole book specialist, so my job is to size up a book in terms of its integrity. Um, I would never use the Norton Anthology. I would, you know, you'd have to read all of it. My job is to make sure that the parts make up the whole. So when I started reading the Bible, it was absolutely undoing to me to discover that that is what we have here. It was absolutely um, hermeneutically shocking to me to discover that the Bible was a unified biblical revelation. I was undone at the reality that God deals differently with people when people deal differently with God. I was blown away by the democratization of original sin and the free gift of the gospel. And most of all, my total undoing was to realize that I had thought I was on the side of righteousness and goodness and kindness and compassion, and it was my total undoing to realize that not only was it Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time, but it was my Jesus, my prophet, my priest, my savior, my king, and my friend. And so that was my encounter with the Lord. Uh, I don't know how else to say it, except for that the pastor that the Lord used in, in my conversion was my neighbor and my friend. We opened the word together because I was trying to critique it, and he was more than happy to help me keep reading it. Um, <laughs> I was using him, and 
perhaps he was using me. <laughs> but I never felt like a project. And part of why I never felt like a project was that Ken Smith always realized that the big sin in my life was unbelief. Everything else would get worked out in the wash. Amen. That's it. That's the big sin. Not homosexuality. It is a big sin. It is a terrible sin. But when I started reading but, you the know, Bible, I was reading it for So anyway, that's I, I like to close with that because somehow I don't know about y'all, the working at the Capitol being a pastor for thirty five years. Oh, it just looks so huge. But listen, let's get it down. It's really simple. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to serve. Believeth in Him should not perish out everlasting life. The big problem is believing on Christ. And then He will take care of that when that is done. That's, that's still the message. And that still conquers anything. Father, thank You for this time together. May we follow You as we go in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all so much. Went over. Maybe I'll do better tomorrow.